0: Welcome to the Deep Pacific, a Pacifica podcast that shares Islander views and voices. I'm Kalani Regis, your millennial indigenous nerd and host who wants to defund the police and the military complex. We are recording in the third week of July, 2020 Black lives all around the world still matter. West Papuans still need to be free. Breonna Taylor's killers still need to be arrested. Queer people still need to be supported. And the US and colonizers still suck. And we are still working to cancel RIMPAC in four weeks. I hope you are staying safe in these times. I appreciate your attention and I have read every single review and I shared them with my collective of islanders. I might share some of them uh, at the end of this episode, to be honest. But on to business. I would like to begin with the acknowledgement that I am recording on Guahan, Gui Islas Marianas, a territory occupied by the United States. I am not from here, so I consider myself a settler. Although I am Chamorro, it is still with respect that I occupy this land and space. Like I mentioned before, settlers of Guam and CNMI land laws, also known as Article 12 of the CNMI, is an episode that I am excited to bring to you next. You will hear about it if you follow us on Twitter or on Instagram, we're on Instagram now, at deep pacific pod on both platforms. We begin every episode with a quote from an indigenous person that resonates. Today's quote, the intellectual project of decolonizing has to set out ways to proceed through a colonizing world. It needs a radical compassion that reaches out that seeks collaboration and that is open to possibilities that can only be imagined as other things fall into place. Dr. Linda Tuhiwai-Smith. Professor Tuhiwai-Smith is a Maori fellow of the Royal Society who received an honorary doctorate in Canada and is a recipient of the Prime Minister's Award as well as numerous others. She also wrote Decolonizing Methodologies among many other works. This is a very important read for those of you who enjoy this episode. I highly recommend you check her out. I will include a link in the show notes. This quote resonates because this episode will be about decolonization. This huge and all-encompassing topic for us Pacific Islanders, right? But don't worry, relax. We will continue to do this topic justice with actually a series for decolonization. But we don't have to worry about that today. Just relax, sit back, and let me tell you what I'm not going to do. I'm not trying to convince you to do anything today. You will hear from me, you will hear from others. How you perceive the information shared with you is between you and yourself. I would just like to invite you to open your perspective just a tiny bit more. Deepen your heart just a little bit more. I know this is not an easy thing to ask, but we are Pacifica, you and me, so we are family. Our cultures are kin. We knew each other before these white people discovered us. In this episode, you will hear from Ane, a Kanaka Maoli, Tomas, Luta Zangwahan, Toa, an Itoke of Fiji, Haani, a Chamorro Guahan with roots in Samoa, Kyle, a Palauan American living on Guahan, David Garcia of the Philippines, Kavena, a Kanaka Maoli, and Tea of Tahiti in Hawaii. And we will end with a discussion on a scientific paper about the past, present, and future of marine conservation in Oceania. So, let's do it! Let's dive in! Our driving question today centers around a word that already has negative, profound, or positive feelings associated with it. For this episode, I ask that you put aside any thoughts you may already have and kind of just clear your mind. We might not do much deep diving today because I just kind of want you to get a feel for it. By the end of this episode, no matter how much you know about decolonization you might not look at it the same way. Some background information, decolonization. The word is two important parts, de and colonization. If colonization is for a foreign power to come and impose their government or teachings upon a local people by means of force for political gain, then to decolonize is to question that power, resist those teachings and realize that in an uncolonized world, we would have more control over our own destinies. Because of how deep our knowledge of the Western world and our colonizers is, by depriving our people of our culture, by keeping us from speaking our language, forcing us to forget our practices, and giving us their religion, and their values, and their systems of government, we were made to be beasts of burden. Two burdens, actually. The burdens are our burden, our cultural burdens. And in addition to that, taking on the burdens of the society that colonized us. And you know what? That burden doesn't have to be so heavy. It is like an octopus whose big head can be seen all around the world. The power felt every sucker on a piece of land reaching and grabbing out more. We in the Pacific form at least four of those arms with hundreds of suckers that affect our lives in a dynamic, ever-present, and deep way. After I committed to making this episode, I started to see for myself how every aspect of my life is colonized. The money I use, the health insurance I don't have. The prices I pay for groceries and gas at the store because of the Jones Act. The lifestyle that I am accustomed to. The way my family raised me as a traditional Catholic girl. The way my family has brought the baby Jesus around our village every single Christmas, New Year, and Three Kings since I can remember. It's somewhat intimidating to think about, but it's also freeing. I know that if we have problems in our cultures and our lives, so many of these problems can be traced back to our colonizers. So it's freeing in the way that there is a future that could be free of our colonizers, a future that maybe I would not get to hold in my lifetime. But if I can work hard enough and be vocal about it, maybe my future children, if I decide to have them, would be able to enjoy that. Maybe my niece, Tossie Nicole, or my goddaughter, Nia, would get to see the fruits of this resistance. In that future, we get our land back. In that future, there are endless possibilities. Who knows? I would just like you to understand that I'm not going to get into the nitty-gritty today. I'm not going to cover every aspect of decolonization, which is honestly pretty limitless. I'm not going to get heavily academic or political, because that conversation can go on and on. I will let my Pacifica siblings and cousins give you their perspectives. You've just heard my perspective. And, you know, today I actually saw an interesting tweet about the inclusion of Filipinos in Pacifica spaces. I found it very eye-opening. Um, personally, I am not Filipino, so I cannot speak to the Philippine experience. I just know that it feels right to include their voices here, in our space, and I welcome the inclusion of others around the Pacific who are going through similar movements as us. Whether by genetics, language, colonial designation, or history, they are a part of us. I will continue to include and value their voices here. And if you don't like it, feel free to start your own podcast. I can't wait to listen.
1: When I think of decolonization, I think of the seeds taking root from the ashes of a forest fire. Not a wild inferno, but the calculated and controlled burn used to clear a place of what the arsonist considers undesirable. The empire tried to burn the culture, the language, the very aloha out of the people and the aina, and plant their own invasives in the space that they've cleared. Decolonization is the act of rejection of that. The nurturing of these seeds of ike and unipaa our kupuna have passed down to us to watch grow. It is the reclaiming of the forest from the invasives and the cash crops and the hotels they built besides. In so many places across Oceania, our homes, the resting place of our ancestors' bones and the birthright of our Keiki, are held hostage by a foreign empire's desire to consume and destroy. When the colonizer gaze is the dominant gaze, the only view of our homes is that of a playground. Something plastic and consumable to be used and then discarded. Something that can only exist because of the benevolence of the empire who strangled and distorted it. Decolonization is not only the act of wresting our lands away. But destroying the concept of our homes as a playground, as an affect, as disposable. Decolonization is not an act of anger or of despair, but a celebration. A celebration of the strength of our people and the beauty of our cultures, the ponna inherent within us and the deep and intimate knowledge of the aina and how to take care of it. Decolonization is not one quick and clean act. It is something that has always been growing something that continues to spread and will continue to slowly but surely take back our spaces, our lands, our minds, our hearts from the colonizer's grip. Every year, every day, every moment we grow closer to the complete reclamation of our lands and the acknowledgement of our sovereignty. It is not a question of if, but when. We are the seeds that survived the fire, the seeds planted and tended to by our kupuna and our kumu, and we are the caretakers who will do the same for the generations that come. And one day, soon, we will do so in a forest completely under our own control and free from the invasives that tried to destroy it. We will nurse our lands, our forests, our mountains, and our seas back to health. Alright, that was Ane
0: Kanaka Maoli's perspective. I loved Ane's contribution there. I felt, while listening to it the first time, that anger, that, that passion... I love the comparison of our indigeneity to forests. Mahalo, Ane, for that poetic response on what you think of decolonization. Our homes are not a playground. We don't exist because of our colonizer. We would have been here anyway. We would have been modernized anyway. And we might never know because it makes no sense to just think of what we could have been when we're just not. But like Ane said, decolonization is a celebration of our perseverance as indigenous peoples. It is not a quick and clean act by any means. It will have to spread to take back our spaces. And like she said, we must do this for the generations that come. We're not doing this for ourselves necessarily. We know that this is the long game, but like she said, it is not a question of if, but when. Because people are waking up all across the Pacific, we are opening our eyes and realizing that so much of our lives is not controlled by us; it's controlled by our colonizer. So I really appreciate the perspective of Ane a Kanaka Maoli. I appreciate you so much, Sainama maasi, for your contribution.
2: Half a day, everyone. It's me again, Tomas. And before I begin, I would like to give Undankuluna Sidzus Maasi to Kalani for inviting me to participate in today's discussion on decolonization. And when I hear this word, the first thing that comes to my mind is a future I envision in which all groups of people across the world can establish their own autonomy and confidently say that they govern themselves, because to me, That is the ultimate goal of decolonization, and I feel like that should be the focus when we say the word decolonization. What is the end goal of it? However, I have to acknowledge the reality that although my idea of this word is positive and hopeful, I've also come to hear this word used in a negative and revolting context. So I began to fixate on the negative reactions to the word, and I realized that for the most part, That some people are just not as informed about the subject at hand and are mainly basing their opinions about the topic from hearsay or from the opinions of other people, like probably people they read online or like their family members, whatever the case may be. There are also those who are well-informed and well-read on the subject, but their cultural values don't align with the cultural values of the Indigenous population, who are using the word as a positive tool for change. And I've come to understand that some people just gravitate more toward the colonial culture for whatever reason, whether they didn't feel included in their own Native culture, or they weren't raised in the Native culture, or in the most gravest of situations, like they just completely abandoned the culture for another one. And to me, that's all fine. Every individual has the right to choose how they want to lead their life. But when I think about Linda Tuhiwai's quote today and how she stated that in order to decolonize in a colonized world, we must find that compassionate spirit and use it to guide us as we work with one another toward this ultimate goal of decolonization, a goal that many believe will bring about positive change, not just for indigenous people, but for groups of people who are experiencing oppression by the hands of a dominant colonial power. And for me, this spirit of collaboration toward a positive goal brings me back to my cultural values that I heavily rely on and how I let the spirit of Anathemaulic the spirit of interdependence and harmony guide me to focus on compassion and work with one another to better understand each other, and why some of us believe that we should all be striving toward decolonization. Again, I feel like I might be romanticizing my culture, but I don't believe that's a completely negative thing. I believe we have to be careful when we choose to romanticize, but I don't believe we should just not picture a hopeful future for the coming generations. When we're constantly surrounded by tragedy in the news and online, when we're constantly desensitized to all these evil acts, I don't think it's asking too much of us to be hopeful and work toward bringing about positive change in the world. We have this ability to fixate on any aspect of our culture, whether it's deemed good or bad. For me, I just happen to focus a lot more on pulling positive lessons from the culture and an enathomalic, to me, is the most positive belief in our culture. The idea of letting this major component of my cultural identity inform my views on decolonization and my actions toward reaching this goal, it's reflective of my overall approach to decolonization. I am a firm, firm believer in re-indigenizing, or in other words, I would like to make things more suited for the local population. I believe that just as much as law and diplomacy can bring about positive strides toward decolonization, I think also culture can bring about that same change. By re-indigenizing our culture, by emphasizing the values that work for us here in our part of the world, as opposed to the model values that we've been force-fed for the past century, by re-establishing what works best for us over here and not what people over there believe works for us, By focusing our values on the safety and well-being of the whole group and not just certain individuals, only then can our numbers really grow. And the song that calls out for freedom from oppression will ring out throughout the ocean, carried by the tides and crash upon encroaching shores and floating islands, disrupting that violent call of oceanic domination. To me, in order to re-indigenize at the cultural level, There is no other way than at the grassroots level and making those personal connections with those of opposing views so that we can reveal that ultimately we all want the same thing in life we want to find success in this world in whatever form we desire and provide for those who we love when we emphasize that success and love is dependent on all of us participating hand in hand toward this common goal We are able to realize that our anger, our frustrations, and the hurt, that hurt that runs so deep in our hearts, you would think that it was genetically passed down to us from our ancestors. We will realize those emotions are misdirected. We are not each other's foe. We are each other's ally. We already have a common foe, the one that continues to exercise unfair and unjust law and order. So I leave this with all of you. At the end of the day, remember that we all want the same thing for our people and our islands and never forget why we're striving for decolonization. Never forget who put us in this situation. Never forget that we have a responsibility to the past generations who have laid the road behind us and the future generations who will walk the path we set before us. Again, for the opportunity to let me share my peace. And I hope that I was able to offer more healing than harm today. Biba, Tata Pacifica.
0: Oh, wow. I love Tomas' response here. They have blown me away with how open and warm and inviting their mindset is. I think if more people had a mindset similar to that of Tomas, then the world would be a better place. Sainam Asi, Tomas, for your important gilita perspective, for the fire you brought, for the loving hand you reached out to others. I felt it. I appreciate it. I will never forget and just would like to put clap emojis all day, every day, after your piece. But let's keep going.
3: (laughs) Can a bird of the air feel at home in a cage, can a lion say the same? That is what I think of colonization. So if you were to ask me what is decolonization, I'd say taking the tree back to the forest, freeing the whale back to the sea, letting the bird fly free and letting the lion roam true. The Fijian identity has been so influenced by colonization that we can't really tell which came first and which came later. Into our vocabulary have come some new words such as Kovana, which is just governor for short. Kovana usually means in some places, the master of the ceremony, not masters of ceremony, but the master, meaning that they can come and do as they please. Kovano also means the government, just a continuation of the colonial government that was set up in 1874. But even though the identity was adapted to the colonial administration, it still manages to survive. Albeit there are some controversial figures, I am proud of my culture for having adapted enough to see the last century through. It is in this that I believe that we must study our culture in order to better understand our history and also plan and map our future. At the moment, with the current interest we have in the culture and the identity of the I believe that we have what it takes to make it into the next century, and yet one must wonder whether or not it is enough to conserve the culture, or perhaps we need to do more to make it adapt, for everything must adapt in order to survive. Decolonization is quite complex. Especially in Fiji because although they weren't here for that long, the effect, the impact of their coming left quite an indelible mark on our history and our identity. When I hear the word decolonization, I think about how I can stop thinking in English. How I can tell my own story and the story of my people without the narrative of the colonizers. It's a funny thing because to be honest decolonization practically means for me actually to stop caring to stop caring about how our culture is perceived, stop caring about how our language is sung, how we clothe ourselves. As it is we as a people are trying to what it means to be an Itoke okay, what it means to be Fijian even though the British stated that they were trying to conserve our culture and our people the reality is they did nothing to empower us one very well known case where a Fijian a native Fijian tried to rise up and make a successful business called the Viti Kambani, quite literally the Fijian company. Unfortunately, his narrative did not fit in the colonizer's story. Such are the rumors. We are on the road towards uncovering an authentic Fijian identity. And right now, I'm proud to say that I am a coordinator, just one coordinator of these efforts, that hopefully I can inspire others to move towards helping and ensuring that our identity comes out of this century intact. If we can fan the current embers—that that is the leftover embers from yesterday, we've raked over the coals and we can still see it glowing, we have added the kindling, we have placed wood on top. All we need to do is fan it. And I believe that the next century will see our culture revitalized. Revitalized enough for us to continue the conversation of adaption. As long as its people live, a culture cannot die, they say. But I think as long as someone practices it, a culture will survive. Awesome.
0: Our Fijian Itauke poetic brother has contributed his important perspective today, which I value so much. Sainama Asi and thank you so much, Toa. I thought it would be very important to get the perspective of an Itauke today because, like I mentioned in episode 1 on identity and episode 2 on language, Toa comes from a place that was colonized differently. The original colonizers of Fiji, the British, actually made it so that the Itauke people would not be downtrodden in their own homes. They supposedly put into place systems of power that allowed them to continue to live in a place where their language was preserved. And by doing that, their culture is preserved. But like Toa pointed out, that did not necessarily empower the indigenous Fijian people. It just kept them in the same place, in a way. And yet, the colonizers also, in addition, imposed their own language impose their own structures upon Fiji so that although they didn't have a direct, strong, aggressive hold on the people they colonized, they still had a hold. Like Toa says, English is a language that they must learn, whereas Itoke, the language of the land, is just An extracurricular. It's an option. It's not required. Just like in my home islands of the CNMI, where I did not have Chamorro classes after middle school, and any of those classes, they're not required by depriving us of this as a mandatory thing. Then it also keeps the settlers in that place, in a position where they don't need to learn the culture. And that is something I would love to explore in a future episode. Like Toa says, he is one of the organizers of groups that are enthusiastic about revitalizing awareness of the Itaoké culture. One of them is actually a roundtable discussion. You can find them on YouTube called Twilight of Oceania. Another one is called the Oblong Table of Fiji. And the other one is called the Fijian Roundtable. Check them out. I will include links in the show notes to all those three. If you are interested in Itoke culture, or you are a Fijian, please give them a listen or a watch. Thank you again, Toa. Hafadeh and Talofa. Guahu si Ha'ani Lucia,
4: follow San Nicholas. Tomorrow, Zansamoan irasahu. Pukzai dzu giza guahan, lo'umaskwala zo giza, University of California, San Diego, kaleo. Giza Hawaii PhD program Hello, my name is Haani. I am an Indigenous Chamorro and Samoan woman. I was born and raised in Guahan, but I went to the University of California, San Diego for my undergraduate studies. I graduated with degrees in general biology and ethnic studies there. I will soon be moving to Hawaii to start my Indigenous politics PhD program. So The big question, what does decolonization mean to me? For some people, this word is scary, radical, or even evokes fear. For others, it is a dream they wish for their children and for future generations to come. In order to explain what decolonization means to me, I must first answer what colonization means to me. Like the currents and tides, Chamorros, Samoans, and the people of Pacifica carried their tales across land and sea through storytelling, which is the manner I wish to enter into this question. Just a trigger warning, I will be briefly talking about concentration camps in the context of war. In 1941, during the onset of World War II in Guohan, a nine-year-old boy and his family were being violently forced out of their homes by Japanese soldiers. The family was instructed to hike from their village of Barigata to Menangun, an area of Guahan that was turned into a concentration camp during the war, along with thousands of other Chamorros and island residents with nothing but the clothes on their backs. This nearly 11-mile march held pain, tears, and death of unarmed and innocent people, many of whom were unable to complete the journey. Although American forces returned to the island three years later and, quote, liberated, end quote, the Chamorros from Japanese occupation in Menengun, the trauma of this child, his family, and the thousands of other people there would never be erased, making its way into this podcast nearly 76 years later. The young boy in this story was my grandpa, Jose Taitanos Sanicolas. These stories from World War II are so important to the history of Guahan and its people. However, Growing up where America's day begins, allegedly, it seemed as if only this particular history mattered and defined morals. For example, I would take field trips to the parks and monuments throughout the island that commemorated the war, and I would casually take photos standing beside old tanks and other stranded military ordinances. I remember taking advanced placement U.S. history in high school, and only once hearing about Guahan. And of course, it was mentioned briefly as a spoil of war or a strategic maritime location. In college, I couldn't find any mention of tomorrow's in our library database without plugging in words like militarism or colonialism beside it. I soon realized that the colonial relationship between Guahan and the United States solidifies and perpetuates these histories of sadness and despair rather than those of strength, courage, and perseverance. My grandpa did not just march to Menengen. He served honorably in the military for many years. He met my grandma and together put their four children through college. He made a name for himself in the local banking scene, and he built a big house on our family land in Ipen. My name, Ha'ani, is the Chamorro word for day. My grandpa used to tease me and call me Puengi, which is the Chamorro word for night. This is the type of Chamorro history that exists. This is the Chamorro history that should be told more often. The narrative here should be Chamorro resilience. Yet the narrative that is repeatedly told time and time again is Chamorro victimhood. So to me, colonization upholds what indigenous Unanga scholar Eve Tuck calls damage-based narratives which are works that document people's pain and brokenness to reinforce a notion of these people as depleted, ruined, and hopeless. Damage-based narratives constrain the Chamorro people to tropes of despair and sadness. Colonization has and continues to retell and repeat our indigenous histories from the angle of subjugated peoples rather than sovereign peoples, to the point where some Chamorros today cannot even imagine governing themselves without the help of the United States. Colonization has historically framed Chamorros as objects of oppression to the extent where some Chamorros today just accept and believe it. Colonization silences us to the point of internalization where we begin to think that maybe we don't have a voice or maybe we have no say in matters that affect us. As the late Chamorro Senator Vicente Ben Pangolinan said, we once mastered the navigation of the seas, surely we can determine our political future. So then if colonization is the destruction of the possibility and futurity of Chamorro autonomy, then decolonization is in fact, it's reclamation. According to the United Nations, self-determination is the fundamental right of our people to make decisions for ourselves and to determine our own destiny. As a territory and commonwealth of the United States, respectively, Guahan and the Northern Mariana Islands are denied the right of choice over matters of our indigenous land, water and livelihood. As I've explained, we aren't even given the space to tell our own stories without contending with the damage-based narrative so inherently preserved by United States colonization. There is nothing natural about being a second-class citizen in your ancestral homeland. An article published just today shared that 43 sites of ancient human remains were unearthed during the creation of a new military base in northern Guahan. Instead of calling it what it is, the desecration of our ancestors, it is written off as just another, quote, matter of archaeological discovery and related cultural resource management, quote. In its most basic form, decolonization is simply reasserting indigenous Chamorros as rightful, self-determining authors of our own narratives. Decolonization is not radical. It is simply what is right. When I dream of a decolonized Guahan, it brings tears to my eyes. I see Iman Nani and Iman Hoban babies and youth, speaking fluently in their native tongue while playing outside in their lands that can no longer be stolen or threatened by outsiders. I see our children becoming self-sufficient business owners or community leaders instead of being actively recruited and preyed upon by the United States military. I see a strong and independent governing body of local leaders who no longer answer to their oppressors, but instead answer solely to their people. My positionality as an indigenous Pacifica woman of Chamorro and Samoan descent itself tells me all I need to know about my stance on decolonization. My ancestors in both Guahan and Samoa lived independently long before colonialism and damage-based narratives, and I have no doubt we can do it again. Fakmata zanalibri hinasomo, wake up and free your mind. Sinamaasi fafetai.
0: And thank you all for listening. Sainama Asi Ha'ani for your important perspective as a daughter of the Marianas. It is important to note that in the story that Ha'ani shares, that there are two colonizers in that story. There are two imperial powers in that story. And that is America and Japan. America and Japan created these damage-based narratives in the CNMI and in Guahan. In any case, I appreciate the education Ha'ani has just provided to me. I had always realized that it was odd that our existence in so many history books taught in our own islands is mostly relegated to stories of war or stories of ancient Chamorros, with hardly anything in between that. Just know, my fellow of Pacifica, that we are more than our damage-based colonial narratives. We have persevered, we have been resilient. Our cultures are still around today and we will make sure that they stay that way. Sainama Asiha'ani. I would like to invite you at this time to take a break before you hear our next first time contributor, Kyle, a good friend of mine actually, who told me he was having trouble recording and asked me if it was okay and I listened and thought I could do some hocus pocus some of my ancient ancestors to help me with this audio kind of stuff but I simply do not know how to fix audio so I apologize to you my dear listener and to Kyle I hope you give him your attention and just know that anything wrong with his audio is my fault so please bear with me his words as a former Marine Corps service member and a settler on Guahan still ring true.
5: first hear the word decolonization, the first word that comes to mind is independence, free will to pursue my own interests, free of outside pressure, influence, or coercion. As a Palawan growing up on Guam, I never considered myself to be an American. Although I was a U.S. citizen who sang and recited both the U.S. Pledge of Allegiance and its anthem, I always returned home to a father who refused to speak to me in English. I remember idolizing the Palawan athletes that came for the Micronesian Games and regularly attending the Palawan softball leagues. Having had fostered a strong Palawan identity rooted in the Palawan language and culture, it was easy for me to distinguish my identity as a Palawan than an American. It was only after having taken a constitutional law class here at the University of Guam where I was introduced to the insular cases and the term alien race, which really solidified my stance on colonialism. I think like all movements, it will require a lot of patience, persistence, and sacrifice to reach its desired goals. But as technology now allows for news and information to reach people in countries far beyond our shores, it will be easier to connect and collaborate with people and countries sympathetic to the causes of the colonized people of the Pacific and around the world. In terms of decolonization on Guam, I am a spectator only because I respect the rights of the native people of Guam to control that conversation. This, however, does not prevent me from expressing my opinions or thoughts on the issue. If I were to pull up to a relative's house and saw it burning, I would still help to pull it out. Do I consider where I live to be a modern-day colony? Yes, I would consider all Micronesia directly colonized or neo-colonialized. Micronesia, to include the Marianas, is valued only for its strategic location to Asia. I envision a decolonized future where these islands are no longer viewed as instruments of war, but rather instruments of peace and cooperation, rather than borders that divide east from west, but a bridge of peace and a true melting pot of diversity and cultures, while respecting the existence of the island natives.
0: Sainama Asi Kyle for that respectful insight into your thoughts on decolonization. Kyle says decolonization is independence free will no outside pressure or coercion that's really all it is it's our own people governing ourselves kyle said he never considered himself to be an american because he grew up in the culture by sports and returning home often and you know he had no trouble distinguishing between his palawan identity and his american identity However, when he went to college and he read about the insular cases, he says that those solidified his stance on colonialism and on decolonization. So the insular cases are a bunch of cases that basically spell out what rights we as secondary citizens or as citizens of the territories, because we fall outside of the United States We are not fully guaranteed the same rights and representation as citizens in the United States. And many diaspora don't know that, actually. Many people in the United States don't realize we don't have the right to vote here in the islands. We don't have even a representative in Congress that votes. Our representatives literally do not vote. I don't know if you realize that, but it's just, it's crazy. So do we want the rights to vote, right? That's another question that I think every place needs to decide on their own. I personally don't want the rights to vote because it means that we are closer to the United States and I want to kind of keep six feet of distance between us and the U.S. right now. I think it's really important. I'm just saying. Sayonara, Aussie Kyle, for your important perspective as a Palawan American and former Marine Corps service member to this discussion today. I think it's very important to get perspectives like this because, just because.
6: Kabusta and Kyora, this is Mapmaker David. I'm a Filipino living in New Zealand and I would like to share a few reflections about decolonization and my experience as a person who was born and raised in the Pacific. When decolonizing, I think we should be aware of the basic elements with which colonizing projects and colonization as a process proceed. I have five letters for you, C-O-V-I-D. It's a very helpful way to, to remember these processes. C for centering, O for othering, V for violence, I for innocence, and D for dispossession. Let me explain. When colonizers do colonizing, they usually start with making themselves at the center, putting themselves at the center of the project, of the conversation, making sure that their values are the ones that are used as the standards with which everyone else is measured against. Uh, You can see this in Development projects. You can see this in how military bases are built on islands. You can see this in how aid projects are designed and implemented, even by UN agencies. You can see this in how the maps are made. C for centering. And then, when the colonizer centers themselves, they try to construct another, someone who is not them, and. The colonizer continuously compares themselves with that other, with that stranger, with that non-Western person, and defines themselves further as the center, as the top, as the supreme, as the morally upright group. So first is centering, next is othering. You can notice this trend even in the old maps during the imperial age when European cartographers were mapping the world. The places that they deemed as not Europe uh, were full of monsters in their maps. And that's an early form of othering. Next, and this is also a simultaneous exercise as centering and othering happens is violence. Some of this is very outright, like an actual occupation and innovation. Some of the violent projects even happen through universities and through education and through religion. By erasing indigenous knowledges, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. as centering and othering and violence happens, there's a lot of suffering produced in that painful process, and even the colonizers feel a lot of guilt as they traumatize the indigenous peoples. So there's a constant urge and effort for uh, colonizers and their, their sympathizers to maintain their innocence. And legitimacy so you can hear things like it's all for the good of the local peoples or the colonizer says we are civilizing so-called backward peoples or plain excuses like oh we're all part of the human race anyway and we should just move on from the past etc etc. Takanyang in their classic article named decolonization is not a metaphor call these acts as settler moves to innocence And I can spend all day and night explaining these. But the basic point is that uh, for colonizers to continue colonizing, they need to tell stories to themselves and rationalize the act even to themselves because it's just a very painful process that produces a lot of guilt and pain. So as the centering happens, as the othering happens, and as the violence happens, and as the colonizers continue to assert their innocence a lot of dispossession happens alongside that and this is for me how a colonizing project works even today in 2020 whether in an outright construction of military bases and testing of weapons or in very subtle cultural projects that prioritize and sanitize uh, western interests so please remember that c-o-v-i-d centering othering violence innocence and dispossession and i think for us the peoples of the pacific who are trying to to decolonize our spaces and decolonize our minds and decolonize our relationships we need to avoid reproducing these patterns even amongst ourselves and come up with alternatives and countermeasures today i'd like to share my thoughts about decolonization and the pacific from the perspective of a filipino i've been thinking about this question a lot is the philippines really colonized and is the philippines really decolonized these are two important questions as we navigate and decide what to do with decolonizing our lives and our islands and our seas for a background the philippines was under the spanish empire for several hundred years and then during those years there were multiple revolutions that culminated in the big one at the end of 1800s during that revolution the u.s empire came was also at war with the spanish empire and both empires settled with an agreement called the treaty of paris and That treaty did not include Filipinos on the table. The the talks for that treaty were done elsewhere. And so the Filipinos came under the U.S. empire and the Americans imposed their own visions of what the Philippines should be and still treated the Philippines as a colony. This time bringing English, bringing more teachers, more businessmen, etc. And then the war happened. Um, And my grandparents fought side-by-side with Americans against the Japanese Empire. And then in 1946, the Philippines was granted its own sovereign state by the uh, U.S. Empire, and we were finally free. What I mentioned is the popular story. It starts with uh, pre-colonial Filipinos, and then the Spanish came, the Americans came, the Japanese came, in, and now we're free. But I think we should be more critical of that story because if one closely looks at Filipino society today, the same laws, the same policies, the same structures, the same projects that were enacted by previous colonizers are still being done by Filipinos on fellow Filipinos today. Let's say displacement of indigenous peoples from their lands or the extraction of natural resources without fair sharing or the Philippine government's push to export more labor to the world whether in terms of healthcare, the nurses or the personnel in cargo ships and now even with the digital The Philippine government is now trying to train more young Filipinos to be part of the digital economy. And they call it the digital transformation. But the pipeline, the so-called pipeline, produces very low-wage work, which is very precarious and very dependent on the imperial centers. Let's think about that. Is the Philippines really decolonized? And what should we do? in order to reform these structures and transform them because the structures that the colonizers and empires built in the Philippine Sea of Islands were designed to extract as much labor, land and life and knowledge as possible and it seems like it's the same system today. It's just that the control is not direct anymore. On the other hand, you must also be conscious of the existence of military projects in the philippines uh, together with the u.s empire for example the the joint defense exercises or actual military installations i really want this conversation to happen between me and my fellow filipinos and for this lesson about the philippines to be heard by our fellow pacific peoples because having your own state is not enough it is very important that we critique those networks that the empires built and build our own and build them in such a way that we'll regenerate life and reclaim our identity and help us rejuvenate our energy as a people. That's all for me today, and thank you very much for listening.
0: Awesome, awesome narrative there given by Mapmaker David of the Philippines. If you remember his contribution on the first episode on identity, today's contribution was just as educational, and I love it, especially the use of COVID. That acronym, one, is pretty sticky. I will remember it for sure. And two, it's a great way for you to remember how to decolonize yourself. If you can remember COVID, then you can remember decolonization. And I think tools like that are very important. Because, for example, people like me, I'm still trying to learn how to decolonize my mind and my life and all the systems that I take part in. And I would really not want to take part in, whether willingly or unwillingly, a system that is a colonial system. So, sayonama Asi David for your important perspective as a Filipino mapmaker in Aotearoa. David's point about recreating the colonial structures is a very important point to keep in mind because taking colonizer ways and using those ways on your own people, even if you are indigenous, is horrible. It's horrible. It's how colonizers are able to continue their work, even if it isn't a white face behind it. It hurts more when it's actually somebody that looks like you and is from the same place as you reenacting these colonial institutions and upholding these colonial values. It's incredibly hurtful and painful and honestly, being born into this world indigenous is being born at a disadvantage because if you refuse or reject colonial structures and values, then That means you're rejecting capitalism. That means that you are not willing to, you know, throw out values like family over money, over the pursuit of money and success and prestige. And it means that you see your connection to the land differently than other people. It means that you can see a piece of land and you don't think, oh, let me just develop this land and build this stuff and sell it the highest bidder. It means that you can look at a piece of land and you can see your future, you can see your family being raised on it, you can see food, you can see a house, you can see a living and a community. And that's different than how a colonized mind would look at a piece of land. It's really important that now we start to kind of critically evaluate what values we hold and kind of unravel and disentangle these values from what we should hold from our indigenous values, from our Pacifica values. Sainama Asi David salamat, and thank you so much again for that lesson.
7: Aloha my Koko, this is Kavena Kapuhua speaking about decolonization for the Deep Pacific podcast. When I think decolonization, I think indigenous national liberation, sovereignty, indigenous people having control of their own destinies, which for many indigenous people, like myself and like my own people, the Kanaka Maoli, the Hawaiian people, has been out of reach for us for many years, but the decolonization movement has a lot more power now than it has ever had before, and I think we are on the precipice of true decolonization and true liberation. When it comes to decolonization shaping my cultural identity, you know, a lot of it has to do with my beliefs in the modern day, in the contemporary age, but also the beliefs of my kupuna and my genealogy. We have a long history of resistance and cultural resilience and political independence. You know, when it comes to decolonization, I think a lot of it, especially in the movement, is based in pride in our cultures and in our practices and in our worldviews. We can overcome what has been placed upon us to weigh us down, and that is like, you know, the European mindset, you know, unsustainable practices like capitalism, imperialism, colonialism, all of those things. And it is knowing that our kupuna or our ancestors give us the ability to rise above that and to shape our own destiny. Unlike many Western societies or cultures, we learn from our past, we are guided by our past, and we understand how to not make the same mistakes as our predecessors. And so when it comes to cultural identity, so much of my personal identity is based in the idea of indigenous liberation and decolonizing my home and our region in order to give my children and descendants a better chance at knowing themselves truly and shaping their identity without the negative effects of colonialism, imperialism, and Western European society. The movement I think now is stronger than it has ever been. You know, so many of us now are more educated. A lot of our predecessors who built this movement, they were the pioneers of our ways of thinking that are commonplace now. There are so many of us especially among the younger generations who think about decolonization and think about national liberation and cultural ways and cultural mindsets without having to decolonize themselves first they grow up like that because their parents or grandparents helped pioneer those ways of thinking and then those were passed down to the today's generation the kids and the youth and the young adults and so many have not had to grapple with a lot of the problems they were raised in Indigenous spaces, and because of that, they are empowered to grow those spaces until they encompass their entire island or country. The movement is moving forward as quickly as it can. There, of course, there are always bumps along the way, but I think quickly we are moving to a point where we will decolonize our entire region. And I think one of the main goals of decolonization is us regaining the ability to chart our own paths into the future, to you know, to navigate the oceans of the future ourselves. For many years, especially for the Hawaiians, we have not had political control of our home for 127 years, and so for 127 years, we've lacked the ability to chart a path forward to decide what is going to happen in our homeland, and through decolonization, we can change that. I think that primarily needs to be the focus of it, is a futuristic mindset, knowing that decolonization will allow us to teach our children what they need to know to survive, uh, and how to practice their culture and to know themselves both physically and spiritually in their culture how to have a good relationship with their homeland in order to take care of it for future generations and from there i think they will be well prepared to chart their own path forward if we can dismantle colonialism for them to give them the best chance possible i position myself in the decolonization movement as you know just another hawaiian just another activist doing what he can to build a better future for my community, for my culture, for my people. And, you know, I've dedicated my life to this. I'm an activist before anything else other than being Hawaiian. And so that's that's my purpose in life, that's my goal. As a Hawaiian, I'm still learning every day, you know, learning my language, learning my history, learning new ways of thinking, learning new cultural practices. And I think every bit of that that everyone gets is a step toward decolonization. Because in order to learn a cultural practice or a cultural tradition, you need to unlearn some colonized mindset that tells you that indigenous things are wrong or heretical or perverted or just uh, not important anymore. You know, that's something that we're always forced upon us by European society or, you know, by Christian mindsets, even the idea of our ways of life is backwards and The more we dismantle those mindsets and those ways of thinking, the closer we get to true decolonization. I live in Hawaii, so of course I believe I live in a modern-day colony. Of course, there are some Hawaiians who would counter that, but you know, we are unfortunately occupied by the United States. To me, the words that you use to describe it don't matter. The importance is that Hawaiians don't have control of our homeland, and we need control of our homeland. That's the reality. And so whether we're an occupied nation or a colony or whatever you want to call it, we need control of our homeland back. We need to be able to confront the problems facing us and to have power over decisions being made against them. Hawaiians currently have a hard time living in their own homeland. We're priced out, you know, the housing crisis. We can't find homes. We can't confront and deal with this crisis until we have political control. Hawaiians increasingly lack access to basic needs such as health care. Until we have political control, we will never be given health care by our oppressor, by the colonizer. A decolonized future for Hawai'i would be one where the Hawaiian people hold political control, that we have a say in our homeland, and that's not to say that no one else in Hawai'i would have a say. The Hawaiian kingdom, prior to the invasion of the United States, was a very metropolitan society, you know. We gave voting rights to immigrants. One of the things that was going to happen pre-overthrow, our last queen, Liliuokalani, was attempting to get women's voting rights passed. You know, we were always a very progressive society. A decolonized future for Hawai'i is an accepting one, it's an inclusive one, it's an intersectional one, but it is one rooted in Hawaiian tradition and Hawaiian culture and Hawaiian history, moving bravely into the future, continuing to decolonize and confront colonialism where if it rears its ugly head, And in my mind, at least, a decolonized Hawaii is one that continues to fight for decolonization of our Pacific cousins, for the Pacific Rim, for the Pacific region in general, and for all oppressed people around the world.
0: Awesome. Saina maasi and mahalo, Kavena, for your important thoughts on decolonization from the perspective of a Kanaka Maoli living in Hawaii. Like Kavena said... Kanaka Maoli and Pacifica people in general have had a long history of resistance, of cultural resilience, and political independence. We can overcome what has been placed upon us to weigh us down. We learn from and are guided by our past. And when it comes to cultural identity, Kavena's identity is based on the idea of indigenous liberation for the future generations. Like he said, Our main goal is us regaining the ability to chart and navigate our own paths into the future, whatever those paths may be. But another important point to keep in mind is the strategy that our colonizers are employing to keep our indigeneity and our indigenous inhabitants downtrodden. Our colonizers keep us disadvantaged, sometimes in our own homeland, sometimes elsewhere, They keep us uneducated. They keep us fighting amongst ourselves and with others. They keep us busy in our lives, trying to pay rent. So we don't have time to protest. We don't have an awareness or understanding of why our lives are this way. And that is a sure way to keep the colonizers in power. And in 2020, we don't want any of that. We want our land back. We want our people back in power. We want to remember. We don't want to live with our eyes closed anymore. I reject the notion that the true power in this world comes from a rich, old, white man. I reject that notion wholeheartedly. Also, if you haven't heard, RIMPAC is happening in four weeks. Kavena is one of the co-organizers for the Cancel RIMPAC Coalition. So I highly recommend that you check out the bonus episode on RIMPAC if you are so inclined. Please check out our show notes for links to all of that. Sainama Asi Kavena for your contribution.
8: Yurana, bonjour, hello. My name is Teotuahiri, and I will continue the conversation about decolonization. Decolonization requires purposeful effort rooted in rekindling our pilina to the aina. I was listening to the incredible Manawahine Jamaica Ozorio speak on another podcast, Native Stories, where she describes this restoration of our relationship to the land. Rekindling our pelina to the aina comes with repairing our internalized pain, which in turn heals our relationships with each other. Censoring ourselves in relationship to the land is very different from typical Western ideology. Part of decolonization is unlearning Western ideology and reshaping our ways of thinking through an indigenous critical lens. By restoring the pilina severed by colonization, our pilina with ourselves and each other inherently heals. We are able to love ourselves, each other, and the land without the restraints created by colonization. Decolonization is the unlearning of Western thought and relearning of indigenous thought processes. Decolonization is a multifaceted, densely layered, incredibly vital part of what we must do to not only become better people, but to also save the planet. Decolonization requires the unlearning of patriarchal ideology, unlearning heteronormativity, homophobia, and transphobia, unlearning racism and colorism, and ultimately unlearning the ideals established by capitalism. In my education as an ethnic studies major at UH Mānoa, the aspect of decolonization that resonated most with me is decolonizing love. Decolonizing love is the rethinking of our relationships with ourselves, the land, our fellow human beings and all other living things. Colonization has embedded itself in the very core of our existence. It has seeped its way into our hearts, but like any foreign substance, colonization can be removed. The pain will never be forgotten, but we can heal. Ya We can rethink the family system into more than the nuclear family. In Hawaii and in Tahiti, we are raised by many people. Aunts and uncles and older cousins all take a great part in raising us. The nuclear family is a known concept, but not strictly practiced. It's not uncommon for families to include grandparents. We can reimagine how we see family extend family once again to include aunts, uncles, cousins, and grandparents all living together, providing for each other. Our Pacifica hearts are as vast as the ocean we come from. We know family is not limited to blood. We know family to be those we love. We know things like blood quantum and biology mean little to who we are. Family, like this indigenous identity, is so much about who you claim and who claims you. Unraveling the colonized concepts that restrict our existence and connection to each other will lead to mending the pilina between us that has existed as long as this salty sea. When we grow up living with the land, giving to her as she gives back, we develop a relationship words cannot explain. Our Mother Earth is more sacred than these colonized words can describe. When we understand this, we understand that we come from Mother Earth. She is sacred and so are we. We then understand that one cannot succeed unless all succeed. We understand that we must live with and love the Earth, care for her as the sacred mother she is, tend to her, then she will heal. And so will we, ya yeah, Oh, we will heal. Marururoa, thank you for
0: listening. Wow, beautiful poetic response there by Tea Tuahere of Tahiti. Thank you so much for your response. It made me feel incredibly rooted and connected. And it was a gift, honestly. I appreciate it so much now that you have listened and heard from all of these people of the Pacific I invite you now, dear listener to think about this in your own mind to imagine a decolonized future what would it look like? and what words come up when you think of the word decolonization? I invite you to think about all the people of the pacific who are colonized did you know that the united nations actually doesn't list a lot of these places as colonized and that in itself is something that can be explored in a future topic but for now just know that under these colonial structures under colonial rule and if white people white old men have the power still? Or settlers have the power still? If the indigenous people of the Pacific do not have the power in their own homelands, then they are a colony and they are colonized. And I am colonized as a daughter of Marianas and Micronesia. And we stand in solidarity with each other We link hands throughout the Pacific to let our brothers and sisters know that we are here and we care and we're together and we're in this struggle. We may have all been colonized at different times by different people in our different places, but we all understand we have this shared feeling of suffering. But don't let that define you. Think about Tomas's peace and about Cavenna's peace and about Tea Tua Here's peace, about how resilient we as Pacifica people are. How much we have endured and how much we will continue to endure for the future. Things don't happen as quickly as we want often. And a lot of the times, settlers in our own homelands are also partially the reason why a lot of the times the indigenous people are put at a disadvantage. When settlers want more than the indigenous people have, that is when things get a little messy. And if you are a settler in another land, I hope that you will support the indigenous people of that land. I hope that you critically analyze what role you are playing in that place. There is a reason why colonization and the hashtag land back is coming into play during 2020 in the time of a pandemic, in the time of global warming, in the time of governments seemingly collapsing. We do not exist for settlers. We exist for ourselves and we were here and we have been here and we will continue to endure. I thank you so much for your attention. I invite you at this time to take a break because what we have coming up next is a scientific paper on marine conservation in Oceania. It came out in 2018 and I hope you give it a listen. Thank you. So... Now that we have accomplished listening to things about decolonization, how about we dive into this scientific paper? So the paper is entitled Marine Conservation in Oceania, Past, Present, and Future. This paper was published in 2018 in the Marine Pollution Journal. I will be including the link in the show notes if you want to check it out. I think it's really informative because it does give a pretty broad scale view of marine resource management in Oceania back before colonization and then even during and then after. So it's definitely something that you'll learn a lot about. Um, And then it also includes a lot of great citations. It also includes one citation that I think is problematic, but I'm not going to talk about that here because I don't have the time. So the paper was written by Alan M. Friedlander. It was a part of the Pristine Seas, which is the National Geographic Society, and the USA Fisheries Ecology Research Lab at the University of Hawaii. Dr. Friedlander has published extensive research in Oceania on fisheries and resource management. Cool, cool. So this paper was about integrating traditional ecological knowledge and customary management practices into contemporary marine management which can form adaptive approaches to confronting changing socio-economic and environmental conditions. Ooh, mouthful. So what does that all mean? Let's start in the beginning. Integrating traditional ecological management and customary management practices basically says that they want to take what indigenous people like me and you know or what our cultures have passed down to us in terms of indigenous marine resource management. So they want to take that and they want to integrate that knowledge into contemporary marine management, which is how our marine resources, such as pelagic and reef fisheries and deep bottom fisheries and other resources like watersheds, beaches, etc. They want to use our traditional knowledge and customs to help manage that in the modern day. So this is actually something I'm very interested in as a career, although specifically I would like to study coral reef management and the microbiology of it. Um, But my work experience so far has been pretty heavy on fisheries. So this is actually a topic I know a little more about. What Dr. Friedlander expands upon in this paper is that although it could be that our ancestors maybe weren't necessarily managing the marine resources in a way that was supposed to conserve it in our modern day thought of conservation, nevertheless, because we are indigenous and we have been stewards and protectors and guardians of these oceans for centuries, naturally, we are the ones who have those low-cost practices of community engagement and management which can be used to conserve. So this paper is significant because many marine management rules and regulations, they actually were already in place thousands of years ago, such as seasonal bans and reef closures, uh, protection of spawning sites and community monitoring. Basically, the authority of monitoring was put into the hands of locals like clans and chiefs in Fiji, or in Belau, This paper notes that after colonization, traditional local authority mostly disintegrated because of colonization, commercialization, and economic development. Quote, colonial governments were generally ignorant of traditional management structures and introduced various types of ineffective, centralized natural resource management policies that often greatly weakened local authority. End quote. Um, it also notes that today... Modernization and a cash economy has driven a lot of the coastal communities to overexploit their resources, which results in declines due to intensive fishing pressure, land based pollution, destruction of habitat, and invasive species. Recognition that westernization was the reason why our marine resources, like fish stocks, went down, in addition to us kind of losing touch with our cultural identity created the perfect situation for a revival of our traditional practices throughout Oceania as innovative solutions to address these problems. So, in many places, customary management solutions achieve positive social outcomes by improving local social order and identity, which promoted historical continuity and links to ancestry and place, and which also reduced the cost of enforcement, and social and political conflicts. So what this paper is basically saying is that in places that did implement or co-implement customary management, there was positive outcomes like within the society because one, um, people started to recognize social order and authority like local authority and they started to have this identity of that place and because of that they respected the authority which you can see in places like Belau. and so because of that this promoted historical continuity and links to ancestry and place you know it's it's basically what we were saying earlier with the way indigenous people see the land and the resources that the land provides we don't see them as resources necessarily we see them as give and take. So we have to give our hard work and we have to give our respect and, you know, we have to not overexploit and we cannot be greedy. And then in doing that, the land will take care of us. The ocean will take care of us. So this paper basically goes into that. And so to improve our livelihoods, we must revive these traditional authorities and decision-making processes again. We must recognize that through decolonization, we can achieve these goals of managing our own resources, our own marine, like oceanic resources. And one day perhaps we could even have government support because in places that are still heavily colonized, they don't have that government support. Would Balao have been able to achieve The level of conservation that they do if they did not have their government supporting that, I highly doubt it. But because the tradition and the culture and the government all are in line, they did it. They achieved a lot of conservation, good conservation for the culture. Climate change, illegal unreported and unregulated fishing, deep sea mining are all closing in on us and our traditional ways in the islands. However, as the paper notes, Pacific Islanders and their knowledge and history and beliefs have had a long history of resilience. So by taking these approaches to management that emphasize the connectivity of our islands and marine resources that don't favor one country getting more over another, and that keep in mind that the ocean is something to be respected and nurtured in order for it to provide, our traditional knowledge can be put together with things like advanced satellite imagery, and ship tracking in order to keep enforcement of our own sovereignty in our waters and be resilient in the face of change that is guaranteed to happen. You know, no more greed, no more military bombing Paga, and no more military doing these exercises in places that are supposed to be conserved. Let me just read to you the very last sentence of the paper. The people of Oceania are at the front line of climate change and while these changes will fundamentally change the world of the future in ways we cannot fully predict, the resilience shown by the people of Oceania in the past gives us some hope. That's the hope. Thank you again for listening to this wonderful episode on decolonization. Please leave us reviews on Apple Podcasts. I love, love, love reading them. I think it is really a morale booster, especially for the collective of islanders that I have. Every time I get a review, I love to share it with the group and read it. And um, let me just read to you some of my favorites. Okay, so this was a, a different one because this person is actually a settler. So, Five Star Review, Insightful and Important is the title. This is a very insightful, important podcast that provides me with a wider perspective of different Pacifica voices. I am a multiracial settler in Hawaii with family that came here four or five generations ago from Japan and Puerto Rico to work on plantations. I really appreciate the podcast because it re-centers my focus on indigenous voices and has been very educational on current issues. Thank you so much for reviewing us. I really appreciate that. Um, I love that you are a settler and you have roots in Japan and Puerto Rico and have come to call Hawaii your home. I hope that you have listened to the episode on RIMPAC because that one is really important. But um, thank you so much for your review. I appreciate that. Okay, so here's another review five stars. Been longing for something like this, all caps, FOREVER. As a young Pacifica, Ma'ohi, Tahitian woman, I struggle to relate to content because it often fails to represent me, people like me, and my communities. But, finally, I have found a space that feels like it was made for me and that in and of itself is so comforting. Even in light of America's civil rights movement, where black, indigenous, people of color, Are getting more spotlight than ever i feel like pacifica people and the diaspora are still being ignored so thank you mao for making this podcast and shining needed light on our peoples oh that was one of my favorite reviews honestly i love that that person said that i am so appreciative and i love that you felt like we were giving you a space because that is the goal Another one. This one is also a five star review. Closing Gaps Between Our Many Different Cultures. Didn't know what to expect when starting the first episode, and by the end, to my surprise, I've not only learned more about the differences of our cultures, but more importantly, how we are all related. We as Pacific Islanders are geographically spread apart, but Kalani has done an excellent job closing gaps on our differences and has created a sense of pride. Not only for our native islands from where we are from, but pride for us as a whole. Once COVID settles down, I'd love to have live interactions with the host and guests of the episode. Great work, Kalani. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate you so much. I literally have tears coming to my eyes. Um, it's reviews like that, honestly, that really keep this podcast going. Like, I... Even the messages that we receive on all of our platforms, on Twitter, on Instagram, really, really, like, help cement the motivation that I have to keep doing this. And, you know, we don't get paid for doing this. (laughs) None of the people who contribute their perspectives get paid to do this. They really just do it because, one, they believe in this mission for having this safe space and Too, they just want to be represented they just want to have that space like like that second review said right now is the time for you know b-i-p-o-c and yet we still don't we still are not often invited to discussions because we are often unseen so of course i am so happy to be doing something like this There are many more that I want to cover. There's so many more I want to cover. And once we get past these huge topics like decolonization, I would love to have fun with this. And so I wanted to also announce that our next episode is going to be on something that speaks to a lot of people during quarantine, but also that is a lighter topic, and that is artivism. So art as activism. I wanted that to be our next episode because I felt like we need a little breather... You know, we've, we've been covering such deep and and heavy topics that I don't want us to forget the reason why we're doing this is just to put a spotlight on our cultures uh, whether it be a good spotlight you know or a bad one that uh, that's up to you to decide in your mind but just to put a spotlight and so artivism I cannot wait for that episode it's gonna be uh, incoming we have a lot of other ideas in motion that we're trying to implement and i once again thank you so much for listening Sinamasi for your attention this is the end of the episode